it's that time of year once again, right? And it's Christmas time, and uh, it's sort of like what you see in that video, and you'll see the, the conclusion on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Just a reminder for you, we do not meet next Sunday the 23rd. So no service in the morning on the 23rd. Say it with me. No service on the 23rd, right? So on the 24th, we will meet. 6.30 at night for Christmas Eve, and that'll be the conclusion of this, okay? Uh, there are little cards outside so that you're reminded of this, and uh, that way you have something physical in your hand, all right? But I've messaged just about everybody who I could get a hold of uh, uh, to let you know that. So anyway, Christmas is here, and it's kind of, um, the truth be told, uh, for some of us, there's a bit of mixed emotion behind the holiday season, a bit like that family. You know, we go through all of the stuff, and it's just like a record that, that keeps on playing and repeats over and over again. So we've got the cookies, then we've got the cooking, and we've got the families are coming over, the in-laws, or so I sometimes call them the outlaws, and you got the office parties, and you got the Christmas presentations, and you've got the trees, and you've got the lights, and you've got the cards to send, and all of that has a ka-ching, ka-ching attached to it, and then they're asking you for money at the church for your pastor. <laughs> so I mean, you sort of scratch your head, and you say, okay, who needs it anyway? Who needs Christmas? Maybe we want to be like the, the house in the, in the picture and we just take the lights down and we shut the doors and we just want some peace and quiet. I mean, if you're like me, you need a vacation just from the Christmas vacation. You, we had Christmas and why are we so exhausted, right? So who needs Christmas? Christmas, well, whether we need it or we don't need it, Christmas uh, is here and uh, last week, we tried to answer the question, who needs Christmas, by going a little bit back in time. And we discovered that Christmas uh, doesn't begin with a couple wondering how they're going to get pregnant. Um, Christmas actually begins with a couple, sorry, not how they're going to get pregnant, how they got pregnant, right, in Mary and Joseph's case. Uh, but Christmas begins with a couple wondering how they are going to get pregnant. And I'm speaking about Abram and Sarai from 2,000 years before the, the manger. That's really when the promise of Christmas starts, not with a couple wondering how they got pregnant, but one that is wondering how they will. And we look through the whole kind of history of uh, from Genesis to like Matthew. We did it in 20 minutes. So you can, you can listen to it online if you like and, or watch it on Facebook. We, we've got it posted there. And, and we, we saw how this promise that God gave to Abram, I will bless you, make you into a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And we watched this promise through hundreds and hundreds of years into a couple of millennia and saw how it got farther and farther and farther away and more and more foolish and more and more of a bit of a joke. It seemed like the nation couldn't even bless themselves and they're told over and over again, you're going to be a light 
and a blessing to the nations of the world. And we saw that the promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And Paul wrote to the Galatians that God announced the gospel in advance to Abram through that promise. So who needs Christmas? Well, the world did, the nations of the world. Remember last week we went through and we said, well, how many nations have we got in this church? And I think we stopped at around 19 or 20. And that was with about 15 less people in the room than there are now. So uh, pretty amazing to look at Christmas in that way. Uh, we're going to answer the question a different way today. Who needs Christmas? The world did, but God did also. You say, what? How could God need Christmas? How could God need anything? How can you say that God even has a need? Didn't Paul say to the Athenian people as if he needed anything? I mean, if God needs, then that means he's probably not God. So I want you to try and wrestle with that and look at Christmas in a bit of a different angle today. Because the truth is, in a manner of speaking, God did need Christmas. And in order to find out uh, why, we need to go again beyond the manger. Um, instead of looking back like we did last week, we're going to look forward a little bit and try and see, well, why is it that God needed Christmas. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of you have children. How many of you have parents? Raise your hand. Okay, every hand should go up when I say you have parents. Doesn't mean they're living, but you have or have had parents. Raise your hand. Okay, if not, then we really need to talk because something truly unusual has gone on. Most parents who are trying to be good parents, they have a desire, let's call it a need, to explain to their children, to demonstrate to their children, to tell their children somehow how much their children mean to them. Yes? Maybe you have tried to sit your child down and say to that child, do you, I need you to just know how much we love you or how much I love you and how much, uh, you know, we're doing all of these things to demonstrate that to you and how proud we are of you and how much we, we love you and how, how we're just so thrilled to be your parents and all of this. And we want to show our children that we're constantly seeking their highest good and we want them to know that they are loved. We want them to know how proud we are of them. We want them to know these things. And sometimes when we sit them down and we communicate this to them, what happens? Their eyes kind of glaze over like this and they, oh yeah, whatever. Um, you know, what's on television, right? So for them, it may not mean a whole lot. For you as a parent, it means a whole lot. You're constantly striving to find a way to communicate this to your children. Okay, well, that's one thing when you've got a live flesh and bone human in front of you and you're looking eyeball to eyeball with your youngster trying to tell them this or trying to show them this. What happens if you put yourself in God's shoes for a moment? You say, how can I do that? I don't know. Well, here you have God who is not visible. Have any of you ever seen God face to face? If you have, maybe you should be preaching and I should sit down 
So most of us, we haven't seen God face to face. Have you ever heard God's voice audibly speaking to you? Most of us haven't. I haven't. Um, and I'd like to think I'm just as pious as the next person. So here you have a, a, a God who, who is invisible. The Bible says he lives in unapproachable light. And yet he creates humanity in his image. How is he going to have the talk with his children? How is he going to try and explain to them, to try and show them how much they mean to him, how much he loves them? How is he going to do that? The answer is Christmas. So in that sense, you could say God needed Christmas. He's looking for a way. This is how Paul uh, phrases it. This is from Galatians 4. We looked at this last week. But when the set time had fully come. Remember we talked about the, this is the word that means God's time, the kairos time. It's not chronos, it's kairos. This God's divine time. And when that time had fully come, you saw all of this history in the nation of Israel, one problem after the other after the other, and you just kind of see things aligning in the first century across the Roman Empire. You've got a common language there, the Greek language. You've got a period that is relatively peaceful, although it's under the domination of Rome. You've got the Roman roadways that have been built. You've got a system of transport. You've got a seaport system. You've got you've got an economy happening. You've got rapid transport. I mean, you see Paul traveled thousands and thousands of miles even back then in the first century with no planes, no, no trains, no automobiles, right? And so you had, it, you had conditions there that were really, really ripe for a message to be communicated. In the, in the fullness of time, when the set time had fully come, when God's time had fully come, he sent his son. He didn't send an angel. He didn't just send any messenger. He sent his son. So of himself, he, he sent. We use an old, there's an old Bible word in the King James Version, begotten. You ever heard that word? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God gave something of himself. He sent his own son born. So not just, uh, you know, he didn't come as some adult, born of a woman born under law. Wow. So this is a sort of a everything you wanted to know about Christmas, but were afraid to ask kind of message because when we look at this we've got to ask ourselves some 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 questions if we're really going to answer this question well why did God need Christmas there are some things that it it makes us think about in our mind why why would God come um, in a in a human form a and this is a clear teaching of the New Testament why would he come in a human form and why would he come in a baby human form I mean, it seems a little bit uh, over the top. I mean, wouldn't God be able to do it any other way? Why would he do it? Why would he choose that particular way? And um, I'm really aware of the, of the current criticism of this whole thing, of the Christmas narrative and Jesus being born of a virgin. And the, there's, it's really, really presented quite well these days. And this is a criticism is really about 100 years old, seems to come and go, and it's really, really popular right now. 
at Easter and at Christmas. And this is the idea that all of this is just a big, a big show. This is a, uh, that the Christmas narrative is plagiarized from other religions that predated it, uh, that there's plenty of virgin births and for that matter, plenty of crucifixions and resurrections and all these things are airlifted from other other religions that predated Christianity, in particular the mystery religions and so on. Um, and rather than me go on and on and on about how to defend that view, I would highly recommend to you uh, that, again, this is still available and it's still free. Uh, Lee Strobel, whose movie, The Case for Christ, we played uh, in this church back when we were at the theater, he has an outstanding and free video series, and he does talk about this a little bit. Um, it's called The Case for Christmas, and it's a video Bible study that you can get at that link. I have watched the first three episodes, and my, 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 he packs all of this stuff into a really great format that really helps you learn. You know, you, you young guys who, and gals who are in college, CJEP University, even late high school, uh, you're going to be told this, that what you believe in this church is nothing but a sham. It's a bunch of lies, and it's been airlifted from these religions. And I think you would do well uh, to watch his, his series there, and he goes over that. Uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to give this book away to the first 40 families. Uh, this is called The Case for Christmas, again by Lee Strobel. And you give it away to a friend if you, you know, want to share your faith with somebody. But it's a lot of, in the end, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You've got a lot of secondary sources there. You've got a lot of things that look like virgin births, but they're really not the same. And a lot of it seems to be, well, you know, um, Zeus was inflamed with, with desire for some human woman, and, you know, out came Alexander the Great, for example. And, and all of the focus seems to be on that God and that God's desire for, you know, uh, a human woman. Very, very different scenario we're looking at when we look at the nativity story. Uh, but why? Why? Back to the question. Why would Jesus come? Why would God come, A, in the flesh, and B, as a baby? And what we have to realize when we look at that story that we read over and over and over again at Christmas time, the incarnation story, the nativity story is immensely, it is over the top, it is almost ridiculously personal and relational. So God does not come to the Hilton. If you remember the clip we played last week from Tyler Perry's uh, Christmas, you know, he, God didn't come to the, the Hilton. He doesn't, it, you don't have God presented to humanity in regal fashion, in majestic fashion, in sort of untouchable uh, and very self-aggrandizing fashion at all. You have a very, very odd presentation of God in the flesh. You've got a poor adolescent refugee couple. So Mary and Joseph, their betrothed, betrothals were, took place when at least the, the girl was extremely young and they, were, they weren't married yet. They hadn't come together. They hadn't consummated their marriage. That could take up to a year after a betrothal. But you see, even after they have Jesus, they're too poor to even afford the typical sacrifice that was necessary when they presented Jesus at the temple uh, in the gospel stories. They're poor, they're young, probably adolescent, and they're refugees. 
So they're running for their lives as soon as they have Jesus. As soon as he's born, there's a manhunt to assassinate him by Herod the Great. So they're running to Egypt. They're running to and fro, trying to get out of the way. Effectively, they're refugees. This is God coming into the world that way. Um, Bethlehem was a tiny little hamlet of a town. In, it's, like the, it's like being born in the bush, if you want to use today's lingo. I mean, Bethlehem of all places. When Jesus is born... They take him and they place him in a manger. Do you know what a manger was? Any of you? A, a manger, any of you grow up on a farm? So the animals eat out of, you know, some sort of trough or a place where they can feed. And back then, that was probably stone. And that, that's what animals ate out of. And that's where they placed Jesus when he was born. Uh, there's, there's probably he was either born in some kind of a cave where the where those shepherds were, or he was born in a house in a, in a place. The word "inn" is used in the in the Gospels. There was no room for the couple in the inn. Okay, the inn is not a hotel. It's not the Motel Six. It's not the Marriott. It's not the Hilton. This is a word that probably referred to a room in a house. It's also used in other places in the, in the New Testament. And there's probably a back room where animals stayed overnight so they wouldn't be stolen or escaped. There's, there's, there's good history that seems to show this. In any case, to take, to take God and put him in a cow trough, in a feeding trough, is very unclean. Uh, and for the Jews back then, this is like, what? this is really... The couple's not married, uh, he's pregnant, what, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of problems with this whole story. And who's the first group of people to discover? It's shepherds. Shepherds were low class. They're out there, you know, they were not trusted. Their testimony wasn't trusted in court. People would pay them to take care of their sheep, but they would sometimes say, well, I'll take a few sheep for myself. They were not trusted people. They're kind of on the outskirts of society. They couldn't follow the Hebrew dietary laws because they're always with animals, so they're always unclean. Uh, who else discovers the baby? The Magi? Not Hebrews. These are Babylonian fortune tellers slash astrologers slash astronomers, stargazers, a whole mix and mash of all kinds of things. It's really strange. That's really unusual, but it's very, very personal because the people on the outskirts of society, the people who were not trusted, the little, little dumpy little town, an adolescent couple who's poor, um, uh, non-Hebrew people, these are the people who God appears to right at the beginning. So any of us can relate, and he comes as an infant, a vulnerable infant, a vulnerable baby. You know, there's an old, uh, an old Christmas carol, uh, Away in a Manger. Do you know the words? The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I'm not, I don't think that was real accurate. I think he probably cried his little eyes out when they put him in that manger. I mean, the humanity and the personal touch there, it's almost, it's almost dropping off of the page. It's so, so intense. 
And you, you see things like, like this, this reference. This is from John 1.14, um, Eugene, Eugene Peterson's translation. He just passed away uh, last month, I think. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Oh, I like the way he translates that. Moved into the neighborhood. I mean, he became one of us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, moved into the neighborhood. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. This is from Isaiah six, seven hundred years before. They will call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew translates it for us, says, God with us. That's what it means. So he has come in a very, very personal way. That's why flesh and blood, that's why a baby in a very personal and very relational way. Great! Let's all celebrate. Great! Merry Christmas. Well, we know that the story doesn't end there. Um, and for that matter, even in the pages of the Gospels, even in the New Testament, you do not, you do not, you do not see people saying Merry Christmas every year. <laughs> You don't see people even celebrate on a repeated basis the virgin birth. You, you don't even see it. You don't see the virgin birth referred to over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. It comes like a blip on a radar and it goes. What you do see celebrated repeatedly over and over and over again, and in a sense, we celebrate it today and we'll, we'll take a look at this even further when we do communion at the end of the service today. We don't just celebrate a Savior who came as a baby. We celebrate a Savior who came and died as a man. And that is the question that we also really have to answer when we say, well, why did God need Christmas? And this you really need to understand. I am convinced that most church-going people most people who profess to be followers of Jesus do not, do not have a grip on why Jesus died. You say, what? That's so elementary. What do you mean by that? Jesus died for our sins, didn't he? Yes. But I'm convinced that most of us, we have a kind of a surface understanding of this, and we can say it over and over and over again. But when we run into a, maybe a skeptic, or a person of a different faith system, and they ask questions about that. Well, what do you mean he died for our sins? Why did he die for our sins? And why did he die in such a brutal way? I mean, a crucifixion? Like, why is that necessary? Why did Jesus have to die in that way? Why couldn't he just say, you're forgiven of your sins? You know, I've had a talk with the Father, and you're all okay, and you're all forgiven. And uh, what, is, what does it all mean? And even in my own particular case, I think it took me minimum five years after I decided to follow Christ. I think it took me a minimum of five years to understand why Jesus died for me. You say, that doesn't make any sense. You must be really slow. You must be a really slow, slow learner. Okay, I'm going to try and show it to you in a more vivid way. First of all, when you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, this is a major stumbling block to people. Maybe it isn't for you, but it certainly is for Jewish people. 
It certainly is for Muslims, and you can talk with our, our resident expert, uh, Joe Abraham, after. I'm sure he'd be delighted to explain this to you. But this is a major problem for those two religions in particular. It's a major problem for one particular cult group. Let me explain to you why. Um, I come out of a Jewish background, and the idea of a Messiah going up on a cross is extremely offensive to Jewish people. Because messiahs don't go on crosses, messiahs pull down crosses. A cross was a Roman, torturous, brutal death penalty. It was reserved for pagan criminals, people who were murderers and thieves, people who had risen up against the Roman Empire. It was a hideous and grotesque death penalty. You ever see in, in the news people who, who, there's still people in North America who are executed by the death penalty. I read sometimes when it happens, usually it's in the U.S., well, always in the U.S., they don't have it here in Canada anymore, and I read the stories behind it, so-and-so is executed, so-and-so is executed, and you see why they were executed. Good grief, I mean, the horrific crimes that they are most of the time convicted of, and sometimes they're on death row for years and years and years and years. I mean, we're talking about the death penalty, and the, you're telling us the Messiah goes up on a cross? What kind of Messiah is that? And that's the Jewish reckoning of it. In Islam, it's not dissimilar. And in Islam, the idea that, that uh, you know, you would need someone dying for sins, a bloody death, as an atonement for the forgiveness of sins, it's an unnecessary concept. And the, the, the rebuttal is, well, our God doesn't need that. He can forgive without that. Like, why is Christianity so crude? That's a kind of a, even a pagan concept. Lots of other religions had atonement for sin with animals and all these kinds of things. It's an offense to those two religious views. I remember debating uh, many times Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, in particular, and, and some of you even in this room have had rubbings with those people, I'm sure. And they are completely offended and completely opposed to the idea that Jesus died on a cross in particular. They will put him on a torture stake and say that he was impaled on a torture stake rather than say that his arms were spread out on that cross. Do you know why? Because the history of crucifixions was pagan. It's a, it, has, it has origins with picking the body off the ground so as not to offend, you know, some God who created the earth, get the body up off the earth, and that's where crucifixions came from. They say, oh, no, no way that Jesus died. Such a pagan death. It's impossible. No, he was impaled on a torture stake, which is even more gross. But they will be totally, totally repulsed by the idea that he died on a cross in particular. And Paul even said this, it's a stumbling block for Jews. It's foolishness, he said, to Greeks. Because again, the, the Greek gods were mighty and powerful and strong. Going on a cross? It's foolishness, utter nonsense. Nice other thing about the cross, at least in my view, it's completely natural. Crucifixions happened all the time. There's nothing supernatural about a crucifixion. And it's a documented thing. So even liberal scholars today, they, many of them will admit that Jesus died on a cross. They're, they're not going to really debate that. They say, okay, we'll give you your Jesus on a cross. We won't give you his resurrection, mind you. But we'll, okay, we can acknowledge that he died on a cross. 
Well, that's extremely important for our question because God needed a demonstration. He needed Christmas. He needed to demonstrate his love for us. But again, you've got to think of Christmas as more than the manger. You've got to think of it more as God sending his son. What does it show us? What is the demonstration? Paul continues the verse. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. This would be the Jewish law. To redeem. There's an act of redemption that takes place somehow. Those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. What's he talking about there? Well, there's an act of redemption and there's an act of adoption that takes place because of Jesus. And whether you're Jewish or you're non-Jewish, you're all included. Like the words of that song, Jesus eats with everyone, right? And like we saw last week, the promise is for the nations, not just the Jewish nations. There's redemption and there's adoption somehow that's going to take place. This is from Galatians 4 and 4. And here's how Paul will phrase it to the Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. You want to know why Jesus died? Listen closely to me because I'm convinced that most Christians don't get it. They just give lip service to us, to it. While we were still sinners, and this is Paul writing, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. You say, you've taught me nothing new. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so s- slow, down the, slow down the pace a little bit. So Paul is a former persecutor of Christians. Paul was smiling when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. Paul would take people to prison. Paul was trying to obtain letters in order to persecute Christians, either have them executed or have them thrown into prison. He was a church stopper, church killer, anything that he could do. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul, he might be thinking of his own particular story. I was against the church. I was against Christ himself, and yet he he had died for me and stood in my place. Why is it so significant? Well, you read the context of the verse, and he says, look, very rarely will someone die for somebody else. Though, in some cases, in some cases, someone might die for a righteous man, for a righteous person. We see stories like this where people, you know, throw themselves into harm's way to save somebody who they at least presume might be a good person. So a uh, story that's, that's relevant in the news today, um, this, is, this is from the actual assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan, late President Reagan, which took place on March the 30th, 1981. How many of you were alive back then when it happened? Okay, maybe you have memories of, of when that happened. I was just 11 years old when that happened. And uh, those, those pictures, and I've watched and watched the video several times in preparation for this, and it's in the news lately because the, the, uh, the assassin or the person who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan, his, um, uh, his living conditions have been even more relaxed. So his name is John Hinckley Jr., and he was pronounced not guilty, Uh, by reason of insanity, 
and he was confined to a mental institution for the better part of three decades. In 2016, he was released from the mental institution, went to live with his aging mother, and just last month, a federal judge said he doesn't have to live with her anymore. He can live in another place. He can live in a, in a group home. His conditions have been even more relaxed. And, you know, some people are outraged by this. He's even volunteering in a, in a Unitarian church uh, in the United States. And, you know, so a lot of controversy about this whole thing. But this, what took place in 1.6 seconds is a vivid illustration of what Paul is trying to teach in this verse back in Romans 5. You see there on the, on the left-hand side of the screen, that Secret Service agent, Timothy McCarthy, and you see him, this is after, I think, three shots had been fired. Hinckley fired six shots in 1.6 seconds from point-blank range with supposed, uh, uh, or uh, they were called back then, devastator bullets which were designed to explode upon impact. The first bullet hit the press secretary, James Brady, in the head and exploded in his brain. He was left uh, severely brain damaged as a result, passed away just a few years ago, was pronounced a homicide because of the gunshot. But, of course, Hinckley was presumed innocent by reason of insanity. There were a couple of other shots that were fired. And there, in that, in that frame, you see the Secret Service agent, Timothy McCarthy, and he was not wearing a bulletproof vest at the time. He should have been. He throws himself in front of uh, President Reagan, who's being rushed into that limousine by another agent by the name of Jerry Parr, who you can see on the right-hand side of the screen. And these men put themselves in harm's way. And McCarthy was shot in the abdomen. The bullet lodged in his abdomen. It did not explode. Another bullet went into a D.C. officer by the name of um, Tom Delahaney, um, and it went into his neck. It did not explode either. They were able to remove the bullets from these men. And the, 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 the final bullet that was shot ricocheted off the car and went into Reagan's chest. And they were able to remove that as well. It came within a very short, just millimeters from his heart. It did not uh, explode upon impact and his life was saved. Um, so, but there were, there were men who put themselves in harm's way. Very rarely will someone die, Paul says, though for a righteous man they might die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That man on the right, Jerry Parr, ended up in the ministry. Uh, later on, after he had retired from the Secret Service, he ended up being a pastor. He was convinced that God used him to save the life of the President of the United States that day, felt a call to ministry, went into the ministry. Timothy McCarthy is still alive today, and the other officer is still alive today as well. James Brady has, has passed away. But this is a, a, a vivid illustration because who would die for the President of the United States? Well, the Secret Service would, regardless of whether they liked him or not. I pray, I pray that we never see another attempted assassination on anybody, in particular in our continent. You know, the North American, whether you like the president or you like the prime minister, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to live through another assassination attempt. But these people are trained to give their lives because of the presumption that that person is worth giving your life for. Well, what if the person is not? What if the person is worthless? What if the person were the shooter? Who would give his life 
for that. And people are still outraged that that shooter has now had more conditions relaxed. People were outraged when he was pronounced innocent because of, by reason of insanity, and they were outraged by this. Well, who would die for that shooter? Jesus did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't show the other pictures, but the people, it was point blank range. It was maybe 25, 30 feet from, from the shooter. And people dove on John Hinckley Jr. at the time. And there were other Secret Service agents there. There was one guy who pulled an Uzi out and had an Uzi right there in, in front of that hotel watching because they thought maybe someone would try to assassinate the assassin. Because that's what happened the last time an American president was shot. The assassin was shot very, very shortly after the events in question. They said, well, if this is some sort of a conspiracy, we need to dive on this shooter. Much as we hate his guts right now, we need to dive on that shooter because we don't want the shooter shot. If there's somebody else in the street who's going to shoot the shooter, we need to cover the shooter so we can figure out who and why did this. But what if the motivation to protect the shooter was one of love? Who would die for such a scoundrel? Jesus did. Jesus would. And this is the reason why the love of God is on such display. The cross shows us. I know it's Christmas. You say, why are you talking about the cross? You cannot separate the cross from the manger, my friends. The people in the Gospels did not. It shows us the magnitude of our own ingratitude. When we sin against God, we sin against the author of our lives. He's the one who created us. He is the author of life. And when we offend him, the penalty is not, oh, well, boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. It's okay. That's the way you are. That's the way you were born. doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. No, when you sin against the author of life who has a moral and ethical standard that are immeasurable that you can't even quantify with words when you sin against him, guess what the penalty is? It's the ultimate penalty. It's your life. This is what we owe in exchange for our own transgression against the author of life. We owe him the very breath that we breathe. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to step in front of the bullet for you. I will take what you owe me on myself. I will die for you even though you are my enemy. Even though you don't even know my name, I will die for you and I will stand in your place and take the ultimate penalty that you owe me. That is the magnitude of God's love for us. And when you grasp that and when you have a conviction of that, I tell you, now you've got it and now you've understood it. But most of us, we give just lip service to this kind of concept. But once we understand it, I believe that something very powerful can happen in our own lives. And maybe there can even be a desire to tell other people that this Christ who we serve, he loves bad people. He loves sinful people. He has shed his blood for the wicked, for the disgraceful, for the outcasts, for you, 
and for me and for all mankind. Joseph, when he found out that his betrothed young wife-to-be was pregnant, is like, man, you've got a scandal on your hands. People are going to talk. This is disgraceful. Obviously, she got pregnant from some other guy. And so Joseph, his sentiment is, listen, I'm going to quietly divorce her. I do not want to expose her to public disgrace. She's pregnant out out of our relationship for sure. And so he thinks to himself, well, I'll find a way. I'll speak to some priest somewhere and I will have this thing changed and I will divorce her quietly. And then he has a dream and an angel appears to him and says, Look, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is not from somebody else. It's not from some other dude, okay? It's from the Holy Spirit. You're dealing with a supernatural thing here that's going on, Joseph. I want you to understand. Don't be afraid, but let me explain it to you, Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Standard name, it's a common name back then. But the significance of the name was important. Here's why. Here's why I want you to name him Joseph, uh, uh, Jesus. Jesus is kind of a Greek word for a Hebrew word, for, for a word that we'll use. We sometimes pronounce it Joshua. We have a few Joshuas in this church, a great name. Joshua means Jehovah is our Savior. Yahweh is our Savior. So I want you to name him Jesus. Why? Because it's a common name. No. I want you to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I want you to give him that name because that is what he will do. Even as Joshua in the Old Testament was a military conqueror and a savior of sorts, this Jesus, this Joshua is going to conquer sin in the hearts of people. So I want you to make sure, Joseph, that you give him that name, and that's the name that he was given. So who needs Christmas? Well, the nations of the world sure do and sure did, but God did. God did as well. It is the ultimate, ultimate demonstration um, of his love for us.